Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Japan's chrysanthemum throne, the world's oldest monarchy, just changed hands for the first time in 30 years. Emperor Akihito abdicated, and Crown Prince Naruhito became Emperor Naruhito. With me to talk about the transition is Linda Hasanuma. She's a visiting assistant professor of political science at the University of Bridgeport. Thanks for talking with us again, Linda. Thank you for having me. I wanted to ask, first of all, I think um, a lot of monarchs and royal family types seem a little opaque to people. Um, what is, who is Prince Naruhito and uh, what, who, what's he about? Naruhito is inheriting quite a remarkable legacy from his father, Akihito, who just abdicated. And I believe that he will be following in um, a very similar fashion as his father um, led under his uh, position as emperor. So Akihito, um, his era was the Heisei era of achieving peace. And he inherited the throne from Hirohito, who was the emperor during Japan's military years and its um, empire. And so Akihito, um, in since 1989, has really been a figure of peace and reconciliation. Um, he has focused more on diplomatic relations and humanitarian efforts. And so we believe that Naruhito will follow uh, the similar path of focusing on the people of Japan, um, providing compassion and care, and responding to the needs of weaker members of society. He has led an almost uh, controversy-free life, from what I can tell. <laughs> he, he is not like, you know, you read about the, the Thai, new Thai king, and he's had nothing but a wild life. And uh, <laughs> a lot of the royals seem to, and other countries seem to have a wild life. But this guy is, um, uh, I don't want to say of the nerd variety, but it's, <laughs> I was reading his... Uh, it was his dissertation for his master's. It's about transportation and roads, and, and he likes roads and bridges and things like that. Yes, he cares a lot about the environment, sustainability, conservation, and um, he says that the best time of his life was when he was studying abroad in Oxford. And he's also married to a Harvard-educated former diplomat who was quite impressive in her own regard, um, worked on various human rights and other issues in diplomacy. So um, I think it'll be really interesting to see how he navigates these new challenges that Japan faces in the region, but also within its own society with the aging crisis um, uh, and, and the recent disasters and, and recovery from them. Now, um you know, one of the interesting things is the gender issues around the throne, and, and people are writing a lot about this. Uh, obviously, uh, Naruhito's daughter is excluded from inheriting the throne, and there is a nephew who is the only male heir. Um, and there's, there was talk about changing this, and um, it's worse than just the inherit. You know, males only inherit the throne. Females, uh, if they marry, uh, they automatically are outside the royal family, and mm -hmm. none of none of their children are, are possible heirs. Is there a genuine move afoot to do anything about this? You know, um, these ideas of 
the throne um, are interesting because in the past there were several female empresses, and this idea of the emperor um, in the modern nation state of Japan, uh, these ideas are all kind of created um, during the Meiji era. And it is in that period in which these ideas and traditions were established, um, often in res- inspired by Western um, you know, imperial powers and governments. And Japan was modeling itself and creating this new nation state, this new national identity. Uh, what's ironic is that the emperor is supposed to be a descendant of the sun goddess. So Japan has these creation myths of its you know, national origins going back to the sun goddess and that she transfers this authority to her grandson. And so that's why there's this tradition that it's supposed to be of the male and that was kind of reinforced during this period. Yeah, but you don't get 15 centuries of straight male heirs, I don't think. Right. Now, isn't it true that they, like the males had consorts and uh, all sorts of kind of like multiple partners and that was what was helping uh, keep the keep the line going. Well, they're going to have to think more about um, succession and gender because right now there's only one um, brother, the Akihito's brother, and then a, a grandson. Before the grandson was born, there was discussion of trying to reform this process so that there could be succession to to a female. Uh, but then when the grandson was born, that kind of lost its urgency. Uh, I imagine that because Naruhito himself has a daughter who's 17 right now, um, and that they only have two male heirs left in the family, and the imperial family is shrinking, that this is an issue that they will continue to revisit. Well, it, it, does he have any way to really push this politically? Uh, it seems like the emperor in Japan now you know, is supposed to be apolitical, um, and the government in power is a conservative one that, I don't know, it seems to advocate for women, but um, not a not exactly all the time. <laughs> How do you describe mm-hmm. the dynamics of what he would be facing if he wanted to change things? I think it's interesting because formally he's not supposed to have any political role. It's supposed to be separate from the state. And yet, both he and his father in particular um, offer kind of a soft check on the politics of the day, especially by the conservative LDP, uh, L- LDP government that has been dominating Japanese politics for some time now. And so it's interesting through their statements, especially about Japan's wartime past, its r- relationships with its regional neighbors, that the the emperor... Um, is actually offering kind of a counterpoint to, to politics. And uh, I think for gender issues that we're paying so much attention to Naruhito. And, you know, he also has a wife. And what the, the empress will mean in this new era as more people maybe see what her experiences are like. Because when she had... Um, married into the family. There was a lot of pressure on her to produce a male heir. And I think more people became more aware of and compassionate of the gender dynamics and expectations and roles of the, the office. 
I'm talking with Linda Hassanuma. She's an assistant visiting professor of political science at the University of Bridgeport. We're talking about the changes in the chrysanthemum throne. Uh, Japan's monarchy, the world's oldest monarchy, changed hands for the first time in 30 years today. And Crown Prince Naruhito became Emperor Naruhito. And, uh, you know, I wanted to say something about how the Japanese public uh, receives um, this kind of event. I noticed that there was a 10-day holiday that was declared. I mean, I, and what does that mean? I mean, how do you take a 10-day holiday? Who gets to take a 10-day holiday? I, th- th- that's kind of incredible. Well, this is a very serious and momentous occasion. And so um, there's this 10-day holiday, which is going to cause some uh, pressure on families to find childcare. People are concerned about all of the work that they're going to miss and that it highlights some of the inequalities within society and that there will be, you know, groups of people who must work uh, to support those that are taking the 10 days off. And so there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect in terms of um, the celebration of this really important transition versus the day-to-day lives of people and what they have to contend with. Like childcare and transportation and email. <laughs> it, it almost seems like another gender issue, really, because it's there's a lot of uh, older people in mm-hmm. Japan who need who need care, and the people yes. who are doing it is primarily women. Yes, that's really important to highlight because going forward, this is one of the most urgent challenges Japan faces. It has a rapidly aging society, labor shortages, and so women are going to be very important to, you know, its economic vitality and hopefully to its political vitality. Uh, It depends on how Japan is going to, you know, include and incorporate them in society, politics, and the economy. Uh, Prime Minister Abe has, he talks a big game about women. How is he doing on that front? Uh, Well, we've had a few years to look back and evaluate you know, the targets that he had set out to improve women's participation in the economy and in politics. In politics, um, you know, he's missed a lot of those targets. In economics and the labor force, uh, we have over 3 million women who have joined the labor force. So um, in terms of numbers, he's made some significant improvements. However, the majority of those uh, women three million women that have joined the labor force continue to work in part-time flexible jobs. Um, And so in terms of advancement and security, you know, these are less secure positions. And so more work has to be done to address the barriers women face. And that has a lot to do with these traditional gender roles, um, you know, childcare, long hours at work, um, the lack of adequate uh, daycare. Would it make a difference? I mean, here we are with this very symbolic monarchy to have uh, more inclusion there. The power, this is clearly a a power situation. Um, Does it need to filter into society in a way in politics, in symbolism that it just hasn't stuck yet? Yes, that's a really good point because this is a very symbolic role. Um, he's a symbol of the state, of an enduring kind of national identity, culture, and tradition. 
I think by allowing a woman to serve as empress someday could really, you know, open up the door to all of these possibilities um, for women, especially in Japan. Uh, thus far, because of these restrictions, um, we don't have those role models. You know, having a, a woman in this kind of position could really um, expand the opportunities and imagination of what women can contribute to Japan. But right now we have a government in which we have certain interests that really want to hold on to more of those traditional values of family and motherhood. Uh, the United States obviously had some role in shaping the chrysanthemum throne at the end mm-hmm. of World War II. Yes. How much do you rack up to the influence of the U.S. here? Well, after World War II and the devastation of the war, the Americans were you know, very heavily involved in the reconstruction and the creation of this new government and constitution. Uh, and they had faced, you know, this challenge. Do they eliminate the role of the emperor or include him during this transition? And they determined that in this period of uncertainty, um, that it was really important to maintain that symbol and office for the people while they were going through this very difficult and chaotic, uh, uncertain transition. So the the figure of the emperor... Um, you know, he had been treated as a deity. The uh, emperor um, Hirohito, who was in power during the time of Japan's militarism and expansion, he had to acknowledge he was no longer like this deity um, after that period. He was made more human, and you can kind of see that through his son Akihito, who just abdicated. The, the efforts to make amends, um, efforts at peace and reconciliation and building relationships in the region have really defined the era that we just um, closed. And um, so Emperor Akihito, uh, even he, he was just uh, recently during uh, earthquakes and other natural disasters, just seeing him kneel with people and yes. uh, was a big deal in Japan. Absolutely, because you're not really supposed to even talk about the imperial household in public. And, you know, even though they are more human and, you know, meeting with victims of disasters and and um, doing these humanitarian, um, ser- this humanitarian service to members of the Japanese community, they're still in a different, you know, status. And so it means a lot to see him among the people, sharing in their sorrows, offering his support. Um, He has really left behind a remarkable legacy of compassion, care. Um, And he and his wife have been very, they've been really humble and gracious to the people. And I think they will remember him as being the people's emperor. Linda Hasanuma is a visiting assistant professor of political science at the University of Bridgeport. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the new emperor Naruhito and the advocation of Prince uh, Akihito. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the news from Venezuela and the coup attempt there. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Listening to Worldview on WBEZ, I'm Jerome McDonald. Supporters of Juan Guaido are making another attempt to force Nicolas Maduro from power today in Venezuela. Supporters are on the street and include members of the armed, uniformed security forces. There have been clashes and shots fired. There's uh, escalating uh, street protests. But Nicolas Maduro says that he's spoken with military leaders who have shown total loyalty to the people, to the Constitution, to the fatherland. With me is David Smaldi. He's a senior fellow at the Washington Office on Latin America. He's also a professor of sociology at Tulane University. Good to talk with you, David. Hi, Jerome. Uh, I think people are always surprised at why these things happen when they do. Why is Juan Guaido and the opposition forces getting out there today? What's happening? Well, it surprised all of us. I mean, I think the element of surprise was an important issue here. Guaido and his uh, coalition had been announcing for really the past couple of weeks that on May 1, which is tomorrow, there was going to be a, a really significant, the biggest demonstration in history, and that was going to be the beginning of something they called Operation Freedom. And so this morning, uh, many of us woke up with, with phone calls saying that there was an uprising. Uh, I was woken up at 5 a.m., and and Guaido was at the... the um, Carlota Air Base in Caracas with Leopoldo Lopez, who, of course, has been a political prisoner for five years, and saying that the military had turned and was on his side, and it, this was the, 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 the beginning of Operation Liberty and that, uh, you know, the end of Maduro's term. And so uh, they sort of moved it up one day. Either that was a strategy to sort of catch the government off guard, or it was because some people say that Huaido had information that tomorrow they were going to try to arrest him. And so it's not quite clear why why they did it right now, but um, it's not surprising that they do something because I think it's pretty clear that time is not on the side of the opposition. It's going to be hard for them to sustain their movement uh, compared to the government, which, of course, has institutions in the military. The uh, people who are in the armed forces who seem to have sided with Juan Guaido, uh, how how significant are they? It's there are some people testifying. You can see them on 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 the the social media feeds and things. And obviously, if Leopoldo Lopez was able to get out of house arrest, somebody is helping him get out. Is does, does this mean there's any more significant support for Guaido? Well, it, it seems so far that, as with other cases, this is relatively limited. That it's we're talking about dozens, perhaps hundreds of of soldiers that have supported Wido. None of the high military command is part of this. Uh, and so it doesn't seem like it's, it's a broader military um, uh, movement against the government. However, there are reports, and of course, there's, there's rumors swirling. It's not uh, clear at all what's going on, in part because, you know, the, there's, there's so little media, like actual uh, uh, real media that's uh, able to operate in Venezuela. So you have to maintain, uh, keep on track, uh, on top of things through Twitter. 
But there's also rumors that there are negotiations higher up uh, about Maduro with the military and whatnot. So, but those are rumors so far. So far, it looks like it's a pretty limited rebellion that uh, you know, shouldn't take too long before the, the armed forces get control of. Well, what happens if that's the case? If the armed forces get control and uh, you've got somebody who is uh, really taking up arms against the government now, uh, they, they are not going to have space to just continue their effort. I imagine he would, uh, you would arrest Juan Guaido. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that is, is a likely outcome of this, is that uh, they will arrest Juan Guaido and, and re-arrest Leopoldo Lopez and probably some other figures. I think clearly they were playing their strongest card that they had at this moment, uh, to try and get the military to flip. They tried, they tried to sort of uh, give every image, every pers- every uh, appearance possible that this was a widespread coup and push against Maduro and that they were succeeding and congratulating each other. Um, but that seems to not have been enough. And, and it seems likely that they will uh, end up arresting Guaido and Leopoldo Lopez and I'm sure that they, they knew that that was a good possibility. That was a possibility, and, and that's also part of a strategy because I think they they think that the international community will step up the pressure even further against Maduro, and that could happen. Um, and it's it's the card they had to play, I think, uh, from their perspective. The you know, Because the, it, the situation is that uh, the opposition, time is not on the side of the opposition. It's really hard to keep... keep uh, this type of mobilization going for a long time and and uh, uh, you know even in a, in a normal context it's hard to keep this kind of protest movement going but in a context where the government controls the institutions controls the guns and controls the economy it's even more difficult uh, if you add to the fact add to that the fact that the US has uh, placed oil sanctions on Venezuela and that is those are starting to take effect and are going to create even further economic chaos, which is going to hurt the people more than it hurts the government. You know, the, I think the opposition realizes that it's it's uh, it's going to be losing strength. I think in the coming weeks and months, rather than gaining strength. Now, uh, well, why does the why don't why isn't there more people coming out for Wido if the country is hurting so bad? And he calls for like a big street thing. And it sounds like there's a significant amount of people who do come out. But there's also seems to be a some kind of rally for Maduro, too, that uh, they, they people don't seem to have, um, I don't know what, made a decision, don't, don't seem to be able to force the issue. Well, it's it's important to realize that protests are always very small minorities. Even when you have really massive protests in a country, you're usually talking uh, about 3% of the population. If you get 3% of the population or 5% of the population in the street, that is a massive, enormous protest. And so in the current context, polls show that Guaido has 60%, 70% support. Maduro has 10 to 15% support. And so... You know, if Guaido can mobilize two uh, percent of the of the population and Maduro uh, can mobilize one percent, well, then it ends up looking like sort of an even, even, uh, even fight. I mean, what you really need is what's much more precise is to actually have a, a voting sit- situation, which people can vote for who they want as their leader. Uh, but that's that's what's been basically blocked for the past two years by the government. You no, know, they've they've basically undermined the electoral institutions and not made a fair election possible. That's what started this whole problem about a year ago. Is that they held elections that were not considered uh, valid elections, legitimate elections by the international community. 
I'm talking with David Smildy, Senior Fellow at the Washington Office on Latin America and a professor of sociology at Tulane University. We're discussing what's going on in Venezuela, where supporters of Juan Guaido are making another attempt to force Nicolas Maduro from power today. In Venezuela, there's been clashes, there's been shots fired, there are people in the street from both sides. I wanted to talk some about the United States and the international community and what they do. Uh, the United States seems to have been ready with their Twitter feeds on this one because every major uh, figure in the Trump administration and um, certainly Marco Rubio are, are, are twittering away about this and giving strong support to um, to Juan Guaido. Uh, is there a is there um, are they going to lose face if he doesn't do this and, and get these people in? Um, I'm not so sure if they'll lose face. I mean, it's 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 clear that Venezuela now is sort of a, a central uh, aspect of Donald Trump's foreign policy, you know, and it's been that way really since the beginning of the year. They've really strongly and vocally supported why, though, Trump made a speech in in, in February at the uh, at the at Florida International University saying, you know, tying Venezuela to socialism. And so it does a number of things for Trump. You know, it, it, it allows Trump to sort of demonstrate himself as a neoconservative as the same, at the same time that he's pulling troops out of Syria and Afghanistan. He's basically sort of saying that here in this hemisphere, we are, you know, in control and promote democracy, even if we, we pull out of other places. Uh, it also allows him to sort of uh, a camp- campaign issue in Florida, which, of course, for is, is essential for any feasible map that Trump has in 2020 to, the, to, to, to re-election. And, and it also, it, it, it's just a, it, an important point uh, uh, for the Trump administration in, in terms of Latin American policy, of, of having a, uh, an issue that he can actually be victorious on before, before 2020. It doesn't look like he is going to have uh, anything really, any real uh, achievement in terms of foreign policy. And so I think he's, he, they think that this is um, some a sort of victory that they can actually have. And it's become right at the very forefront of this administration and its, and its supporters. They're always ready with Twitter feed. Yeah, but it, it's made for some pretty vivid comebacks. I noticed the Venezuelan foreign minister said that Vice President Pence is fulfilling his role as the head of the attempted coup d'etat. In the name of God, he calls for violence and death. Is this what a good Christian does? The people of Venezuela and the Bolivarian armed forces are the guarantees of peace and the respect for the Constitution. Um, they get some pretty nasty name calling going on here. Yeah, well, this is this is the problem, and this is why many of us had warned the United States from getting taking a real protagonistic role in this. Um, I mean, certainly it's helped the opposition and provided some force and some support to the opposition. But it, now it's made this about the United States, both within Venezuela, you know, and, and Maduro and his coalition used this to great effect. Uh, and and uh, you know, I think it, it's something that doesn't really help them in terms of opinion polls. I think most Venezuelans, 80% of Venezuelans are sort of been there, done that. They don't want to to hear anything that Maduro has to say. But it helps them with keeping the military uh, coalition together, keeping the military on board. And it also helps internationally. It helps internationally. There's all kinds of sort of... uh, Solidarity groups and and uh, anti-imperialism groups and and leaders that 
take this and make this into something that's about the United States. And I think that's been a real drag on the situation. It's, it's meant that the whole situation has returned to a sort of Cold War rhetoric rather than talking about the democratic rights of Venezuelans. Well, does this ever get to the point where the U.S. and the Southern Command today said that nothing's changed, we're not considering any armed military intervention, but do they uh, end up with some kind of military subversive push to do something in Venezuela because their their guy is floundering and, and can't make it happen? Well, I think for the time being, that's not really on the agenda. I mean, uh, Trump has been saying now for a year and a half that there is a military option, there is a military option, but the opposition actually called on the Trump administration to use a military option at the end of February, they said, well, actually, we believe in political settlement. What's clear is that the U.S. has no military assets anywhere around Venezuela right now. It, um, it's not in a position that it could really do anything. And I don't think there's a whole lot of appetite among the American public for this. Uh, you know, there's been estimates uh, uh, with, from within the Pentagon that it would take over 100,000 troops five years to, to occupy Venezuela and actually stabilize it. So I don't think there's a whole lot of appetite for this. But it, ex- it, it can't be counted out. I know for a fact that there are preparations going on within the administration, with the, within the armed forces for scenarios in which there could be intervention in, in, uh, in, my, in, in Venezuela. And, you know, it's, it's one of the time-honored ways that, that U.S. presidents have of, of sort of rallying the troops. He, George Bush invaded Iraq, and when he was up for re-election in 2004, he, ba- he basically said, well, you can't switch a horse midstream. No, and so it's something that we have to keep an eye on very closely. That you know, in twenty twenty, this could this could make sense for Trump if his campaign is, is flagging that uh, you know some sort of intervention in, in in Venezuela would be be used to sort of rally around the flag. Is there something else the international greater international community can do? The Lima Group is supposed to be the the guys who are going to um, show some solidarity and help out here. What about all the other countries? Well, actually, there there is. I think you know there's been a lot of uh, of pressure. You know, the United States put on pressure. The Lima Group has basically uh, towed the line with the United States and pressure in Venezuela. There, I think there needs to be. You know, I think the pressure is necessary, but I think there needs to be diplomatic efforts also, so that pressure is directed into into a positive direction. You no, know, the. Uh, uh, you know, I think the most interesting effort that's going on right now is the one that's, that was started by the European Union. It also includes a number of Latin American countries, which is called the International Contact Group. Uh, they are meeting with the opposition, meeting with the government, doing shuttle diplomacy, trying to broker some new elections. I think that's a positive effort. I think efforts to try and get humanitarian aid in. Uh, are good, you know, the, the Red Cross brokered a deal between the government and the opposition. And so there are some efforts, but I think there's got to be more. I think there's gotta, they've got to be more robust. I think also, you know, the big impediment here is that this has become a, a geopolitics, geopolitical standoff between the United States on the one side and Russia and China on the other side. And I think, you know, that that's really unfortunate. Those are really powerful countries, way, way more powerful than Venezuela. And so I think you know, especially there's some space in which the United States could, uh, you know, come to some sort of agreement, some sort of pragmatic agreement with China. I think that could have a huge, a huge influence uh, on the current situation. And Russia has a hundred advisors in Venezuela right now. 
Yeah, they have. And they've had they've had advisors for quite some time, and, and Venezuela has a lot of Russian weaponry, and including a very advanced missile defense system that that the Russians come in and maintain. And so, uh, Russians are there. I I think that for Vladimir Putin, uh, Venezuela, and the current situation, uh, bogging down the United States or sticking its thumbing its nose in the United States is very useful. I don't really think that there's. Uh, much hope that he could negotiate with Russia. I don't think that Russia, you know, is going to go all out uh, in this for for Venezuela. I think I think China is probably the 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 global power that favors Venezuela. That's that that's most sort of uh, reflective about their support of Venezuela. And I think that's where the United States could actually work. I, I mean, I, I tend to doubt that with with the Trump administration and, and the way it does foreign policy. But but that's something that could actually uh, cause a breakthrough. Well, we'll keep our eye on what's happening in Venezuela. Thanks for joining us. David Smaldi, Senior Fellow at the Washington Office on Latin America and Professor of Sociology at Tulane University. Thanks a lot. Sure. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about Berlin and an effort at rent control there that I think you'll be interested in. Stay tuned. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. In Berlin, there's a plan afoot to seize 200,000 homes from the city's biggest landlords and turn them into social housing. A referendum next year could force what would be historic expropriations. Expropriation advocates cite a never-before-used Article 15 of Germany's basic law that allows for nationalization of land. The Berlin housing fight could set a precedent for activists around the world who advocate for rent control and affordable housing. Lucas Hermsmeyer is uh, writing about this, the housing crisis in Berlin, in the March 27th issue of The Nation magazine. Thanks for joining us, Lucas. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I wonder, you know, I mean, Berlin is in a unique situation here. It was a divided city in the Cold War, and West Berlin was a little island um, and then it came together to be this growing capital of Germany. Uh, can you describe what happened with housing then and that kind of transition? Well, I would say the, the main thing that happened is that the city has changed drastically, right? Especially over the last 10, 15, 20 years, rents have gone up. Um, in the last 10 years, um, they have doubled the some neighborhoods like Prenzlauer Berg and Kreuzberg have changed dramatically. It has become, yeah, more international. It has become more diverse, but it has also become more uh, expensive and less affordable, especially for families who have to leave the center. So what we see now with this movement against gentrification is a response to the changes Berlin has gone through over the last decade and more. Now, some of that has to do with... Um I guess I would call it what privatization of housing. They're, they're, the city yeah. sold a lot of units, and the companies that snapped them up 
uh, did really well with them. Uh, can you describe the the top company, the top rental agency in uh, in Berlin? So the biggest private owner is Deutsche Wohnen with. Uh, I think 110,000 um, units. And what, as you said, what happened in Berlin uh, between 1989, after the wall came down in 2004, the city sold in total, I think, 200,000 apartments to private uh, landlords. And not only apartments, they also sold uh, their water supply, they, they sold their electricity. So much of their public infrastructure went into private hand. And what the Berlin government did in the last let's say, five to ten years, was buying these, these parts of infrastructure back for much more money. So it was, yeah, kind of the, the like, like a correction of the neoliberal agenda they enforced themselves. Now, this um, company, Deutsche Wohnen, mm. uh, it, how much money does it make? Who is its investors? So Deutsche Wohnen was founded in um, 1998, and it now owns 110,000 apartments. I think the Biggest private, uh, the biggest shareholder is BlackRock, the asset manager, the biggest asset manager in this world. And um, part of their yeah, methods, part of their strategy is to kind of neglect their apartments for a while, don't really care about maintenance as much as they should, not really fixing things until they redo the whole building and then rise rents um, much more than what the tenants could afford. And this has become like, like like a problem that not only applies to or it's not only a problem for for Deutsche Wohnen also other private landlords do the same thing they don't really care about their about their tenants until they kick them out basically and um yeah this is this is uh, why why the initiative that got that was founded last year and now is is collecting signatures put Deutsche Wohnen in 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 the name of their initiative because that is kind of like the the incarnation of the problem like a, a, a one company that is owning so much of property in in one city right so the movement against um again for expropriation is called expropriate deutsche wohnen and co yeah and other and, and other landlords <laughs> with 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 more than three thousand units so it's it's about 10 or 11 companies that would be affected by this law like in, in case it comes it, it becomes a law and in total 200 uh, like about, like a bit above two hundred thousand apartments would be affected, who could then be nationalized or better communalized because it wouldn't be owned by the state then it would be owned by the city of Berlin, so communalized is more precise all right, and I, my eyes did pop when I read how much money Deutsche Wohnen makes it's uh, they made two billion dollars in two thousand seventeen yeah, and they have not only apartments in Berlin, although that's their biggest like market, but like across Germany, they own quite a lot. I'm talking with Lucas Hermsmeyer, and we, he writes about uh, the situation in Berlin with their housing crisis in the March 27th issue of The Nation magazine. There is a plan afoot to seize 200,000 homes from the city's biggest landlords and turn them into social housing. Can you tell me something about the expropriate Deutsche Wohnen and Company movement? Who are they? How did they get this thing going? So they founded this initiative last year in spring, and it was a um yeah, it's a coalition and of, of organizers and tenants' rights activists and groups who came together to build this like network. And um, over the last year, they mainly like organized. They spread the word. They met up with tenants. They um, 
told them what what their aim is and what they're what they're trying to do and it was as um nina scholz who's a journalist and an activist told me for this article it was it was interesting to see this process of tenants realizing that what the initiative wants to do is like in their favor and and but it was also a, a hustle to like bring everyone behind this initiative with this radical word expropriation right that's not only um it kind of like scares off people who are like private owners or conservatives or liberals it also scares off normal people who are not who are not, who are, who are not sure what, what's going to happen with their apartments afterwards so it was in, in like an, an effort to convince um the affected people and then it was um an effort and i think Ruth Taheri, who's kind of the spokesperson of this initiative does a really great job in like spreading it and putting it into the discourse like german newspapers and and talk shows are are full of debates of um uh, around housing around gentrification and around expropriating and that's a thing that's quite remarkable and I was reading that a, a poll in February showed that 44% of Berliners support the renationalization of the flats now, while 39% mm. oppose it. So he's winning. This movement is winning for expropriation. I, I mean, I, it, certainly they're winning um, already with kind of putting it into the mainstream discourse. That's already an achievement. Like someone like Ruspe, as he told me, would have not thought it's possible like only a few years ago. So that's already an, an achievement. Um, there are different polls in, in, in early, earlier this year, the newspaper Tagesspiegel made a, like, yeah, it came out with this number of like, yeah, 40, what you said, what you just mentioned, 40% are supporting this idea. Other polls are a bit less enthusiastic about like from the perspective of the activists. But what's certain is that, there, that a majority of Berliners are uh, affected and frustrated with the, with the way Berlin gov- the Berlin government has dealt with um, housing issues and rising rents in the past. So there is a, there's, a, there's an openness towards radical measures um, like it has may- maybe as it has never done, been, been before. Yeah. Well, what would uh, the government, the city government, do with the houses if they were expropriated from these companies? How would they deal? I mean, two hundred thousand spaces, apartments—that is a whole, whole lot of housing. That's that's one of the key questions, I guess. And it's not that no one can answer what would actually happen if this. Um, referendum referendum would be successful in how the government would respond to it because it, it might also be a long legal process it might be uh, after all in the in the hands of of, of courts and, and judges who, who um, have to deal with it but the goal theoretically is to to put it to make it yeah to nationalize it to communalize it and therefore be much uh, make it much easier to um, uh, uh, create some rent control or like even, even rent freeze um, because it would be a, yeah it would be in a, a question for for the government and not for private owners. And now this is not completely unusual in the European context and other uh, places in Europe. There is uh, there is this kind of government quasi run housing. Uh, it's almost unknown in this country, but this is not completely uh, out of the ballpark in Europe. No, it is not. And several Germany um, uh, and other countries have um, introduced certain bills, certain rent control um, laws. But what I think is important to, to keep in mind is like 
a rent control measure is is one thing, or a bill is even a one thing. The other thing is to to check how much and if even the landlords are um, are like uh, uh, kind of like keeping up with it and are um, are actually doing what these laws um, are saying. They're like in the German law, there are several loopholes and exceptions. It, it, for example, it doesn't the, the rent control doesn't apply for new buildings. If there are renovation, the landlords can like rise the rents more. So laws <clears throat> only laws um, are, I think, a, a right direction, a right a step in, in in the right direction, but. Um, it is much more than this, and this whole debate about who owns the building, who, who gets to decide where buildings, um, uh, um, where new developments are happening. This is one of the key questions, right? Like, who who owns the city? It sounds a bit dramatic, but like, who owns the city? And that's not solved with rent control measure, measures. Well, this is something that almost applies to uh, cities across the world right now uh, with mm. growing urban populations. It's happening everywhere. It's happening here in Chicago. Uh, who owns the city is uh, is a conversation people are starting to have. Yeah. And what we saw in New York where I live um, uh, last – or this, this uh, spring with um, the protests against new Amazon headquarter was – uh, in my opinion, like remarkable, there was a thing Berlin activists looked um, up to and were like uh, impressed by. You know, in in November, I remember going to a, to a meeting of activists against the plans for Amazon to start this new uh, this new headquarter in Queens. Um, they didn't really expect to stop this whole project, but they thought maybe we can like make it a better deal or like a less gentrifying deal, and. Three months later, they stopped the sold that Amazon pulled out and the activists won. And I think it showed several things. One thing is it is worth to try. It is worth trying to, to, to push radical measures. And every success, every, every progress in, 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 around rent control is only based on mobilizing and organizing long-term grassroots, grassroots organizing. It, it is not enough to rely on politicians in the case of New York, like Bill de Blasio, who spoke about synergies uh, uh, between the, the housing uh, uh, projects and, and Amazon. This is, this is, these are myths and liberal um, promises that are not being held. So like, people are starting to realize that they can't rely on politics. They have to, to, they have to be active, active. Well, is the, um, the result of organizing, it sounds like the, the young man who organized this in Berlin mm. has a political future in front of him. He could, he could, he could launch himself into politics and uh, he's got an issue and he could, I mean, we just had six people run for the city council here who had mm-hmm. paid for rent control and they won. Uh, the, the, yeah. the, this is something that you can make into politics. And it is certainly also part of politics. The Berlin government uh, um, is uh, the coalition is uh, has three parties in it. It's the Social Democrats, the Greens, the Green Party, and the Left Party. And the Left Party supports this um, this initiative. The the Greens are a bit ambivalent and don't really know what to do. Uh, and the Social Democrats, in majority, are against it. So the Left Party has decided after years of and decades of, of ignoring these issues to, to a degree to, to, dis, to, to, to support these measures. So um, there's a way to make it into parliamentary politics, definitely. Well, what do you expect will happen with um, the people? Uh, Deutsche Wohnen uh, has a lot of clout, I imagine. They can grind this out in the courts for years. Mm. Is, is there? Um, do they have 
the the kind of clout mechanisms in place in Berlin to to use a Chicago phrase uh, in, mm. to 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 kind of smush this down. Well, they, since they have one more than hundred thousand apartments built, they will not give up easily. Like this will be a question of I can only imagine of years and of of like long court battles. I'm not a law expert, so I can't really speak about the law or like the chances of winning or losing um, these fights in front of a court. But um, Deutsche Wohnen will not give up. They are um, in a company that is um, based around profit and they were, have been really successful because um, the Berlin government has um, allowed it, allowed them to be successful, to, to, to treat Berlin as their, like, yeah, as their ground and their market. So um, Deutsche Wohnen will not, will not give up, definitely not. Do you think that the whole battle and conversation over this has made things any better for the people who are renting right now in Berlin? Do they get, um, you know, instead of letting the, the, the apartments run down uh, completely, mm. do they get a little more service? Do the rents not go up as much because Deutsche Wohnen feels uh, pressure? I think not because Deutsche Wohnen uh, feels pressured necessarily, but to put it in a bigger context, like it is only the achievement of activism and organizing that put pressure on the Berlin government so that um, the Berlin government already buys back apartments, that they have um, passed the rent control law, that they are trying to protect certain neighborhoods is a result of activism. So even if Deutsche Wohnen, this initiative against Deutsche Wohnen and for expropriating will not be successful in technical terms, it is already discourse in terms of shifting the discourse. Like people are, as I said earlier, people are talking about these issues in a way they haven't. So um, this is a success for tenants, right? Maybe more, more indirect, but uh, um, already, already, already visible. Lucas Hermsmeyer writes about the housing crisis in Berlin in the March 27th issue of The Nation magazine. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about expro- expropriations in Berlin. Thank you very much for having me. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international music, and we'll talk about uh, an Iraqi oud player who's coming into town and have a little music for you tomorrow on the program. Hope you can join us. Steve Bynum and Julian Haida produce Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.